0: Well, after verses 1 and 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago, after those two verses, Paul gets into this letter to the Ephesians with this one long sentence, and we talked about that. That one sentence, and our Bibles has a few periods in there, but in the original language, that uh, uh, from verse 3 down to verse 14, is one long sentence. Paul kind of, it's kind of like... You Have you ever got going on something and you just couldn't stop yourself, you couldn't help yourself, you just kept rolling, you just kept talking about something? Paul is talking about the Gospel here. In this long sentence, Paul blesses God for all the spiritual blessings that He has freely given to us in Jesus. In verses 3 and 6, he blesses God the Father for His work in salvation. In verses 7 through 10, he shows the work of Jesus in our salvation. In verses 11 through 14, he shows the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So, what you have here in verses 3 through 14, I just want to point this out to you you see the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't see the word Trinity. As a matter of fact, we read our Bibles and we don't see that word. But we see. In numerous places, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all involved in the work of salvation. In verses seven through ten, our text for today, we're we're called again to bless God. Now that goes back to verse three. But here in our text today, we're called to bless God. We're called upon to praise God for the work through his son of redeeming sinners. Jesus, who has Redeemed us. Paul continues this overflow of praise to God for His great redemption, which he's going to point out he accomplished through Jesus. As we look at this passage this morning, here's what I've prayed for myself and what I'm praying for you this morning. First, I pray for you who are here today who have not seen the light of the glory of the Gospel. Jesus, I pray that God would open your eyes that you might see the truth of the Gospel today. That's what you as a believer should be praying right now. That if there's someone here who has not received this Gospel, who's has not trusted in Christ, that today would be the day. Second believer, my heart for you is that you would not be able to listen to these verses and not be moved. As a matter of fact, I don't see how a believer can hear what we're going to talk about today and not be moved. I'm not talking about an excessive show of emotion. I'm not talking about shedding tears. If that's what you do, that would be fine. I'm not talking about an excessive show of emotion, but it is impossible for you to look at the redeeming work of Jesus and not be moved at the level of the heart by the grace of God that He has shown us. It is hard for me to imagine that we can get ourselves in a position and not be moved by the Gospel. In your, on your handout, you see the main idea here. In Jesus, we have redemption and understanding. We're going to see these two things. We have redemption in Jesus, and we have understanding. So verses 7 through the 8 there, we see, as I have outlined it here, God's grace brings us... Redemption. God's grace brings us redemption. It says in Him, we have redemption through His blood. In Him. Literally, in whom? And that refers back to who? Jesus. Whom Paul calls the Beloved in verse 6. Jesus' perfect life and His substitutionary death on the cross obtained redemption for all whom God has predestined to be the adopted sons of the living God. In him, in Jesus. Those are two simple words, right? But the Holy Spirit, through Paul here, is making sure we understand that it's in Him and no one else. There is no other way. It's in Him. Jesus and no one else. In Him we have redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer. The word redemption here is a very precious word. It has the idea of liberation from bondage or being liberated from slavery. Based upon a payment that has been made. You're sitting here today and you've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You have been set free from the bondage, enslavement, and that was done so based upon a price. A ransom was paid that you could be redeemed. This idea just doesn't show up in the New Testament. Actually, it shows up in the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, you see that the children of Israel. And we know that one of the major stories in the book of Exodus is what? The children of Israel, what? Exiting, leaving the enslavement to the Egyptian people. In the book of Exodus, the Jewish people are set free from captivity under Pharaoh and from God's judgment upon their sin. We kind of forget that sometimes. They're there as a means of punishment. God knew that was coming, but it's still a means of judgment upon their sin. And if you remember, that was accomplished how? you remember the one major, all the plagues are there, but do you remember the one plague in particular, the firstborn dying in all of Egypt? How did the people of Israel escape that death? Blood on the door, right? Something had to die. Blood had to be shed and they put it over the doors and when the death angel come through, he passed over. Something or someone had to die. Blood had to be shed in that situation for people to be ransomed, to be liberated from slavery. And don't forget, when they come to the Red Sea, right? They're there. They're uh, surrounded. They have nowhere to go. and, And what happens? The waters part. They walk through. But when the Egyptians come in after them, what happens? The water falls in on them and they what? D-I-E, die dead. Someone had to die in order for people to be set free. We can't miss those pictures. Those actually happen in history, but we need to understand that is pointing us to something. In order for people to be set free, death has to take place. But do you remember, does anybody remember, if you read the book of Exodus, how the people respond after that Red Sea encounter there in chapter 14, when you get to chapter 15, does anybody remember how they responded Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Verse 1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sing this song to the Lord. What are they doing? They're praising God. They're going to worship Him in a song because of His deliverance. And His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of Your mystery, You overthrow Your adversaries. You send out Your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of Your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in the heat. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Listen to this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out Your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in Your steadfast love the people whom You have redeemed. You have guided them by Your strength to Your holy abode. What kind of song did they sing here? Was it a song about them? Who were they singing about? God. Redemption. Rescue. And they are singing, they are giving praises to Him. They sing a song of salvation. What do the words point to? The greatness of God. Notice that Paul says here, going back to Ephesians chapter 1. We have redemption. It's not that we hope to have redemption, we have it now. That's in the present tense. You have redemption now. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes back to find out if you're saved or not. There's a lot of people who believe that. You ask them, how, how do people go to heaven? How, how are people made right with God? You just You just do the best you can, and you hope that when the time comes, that's been good enough. No. Doing good works never redeems us, it's through the blood of Christ. And we're going to see that here in a few moments. We have redemption. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, we have. It is present tense right now. You don't have to wait. Notice that our rescue, our redemption came at a great cost. It was through His blood. God's grace, God's, God's redemption, God's salvation was costly. And it came at a high price. It didn't cost you anything, right? He redeemed us through the blood of His Son. Pointing us back to what? The picture we see in the Old Testament. The shedding of blood in order for people to be delivered, to be rescued. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is... No remission of sin. How much remission of sin is there unless blood is shed? None. Remission means to remove the sin from the sinner. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Did you pick up on another word there? Shedding? I've heard people say, it only took one drop of the blood of Jesus to save me. Well, I disagree with that. It took the shedding of blood. It took the pouring out of of blood, and without it, there is no salvation. The idea is that the sacrificial death of Jesus—that we deserve for our sin—he takes in our place. God has been fully satisfied that the death penalty we deserve for our sin has been paid by Jesus. Jesus Himself on the cross. For God to allow such an sacrifice. It's grace. It's costly, right? What's the song we sing about grace? It's what kind of grace? It's amazing grace. Why is it amazing? Look at us. And then look at what God did to redeem us. Why is God's grace so amazing? Well, look at verse 7. It means the forgiveness of our trespasses. Some of your translations have the word sins. Trespasses. Notice it's plural there. The word trespasses has the idea of crossing the boundaries of God's commands. That's what that means. Does that make sense? You're right up down the road out here and you see those uh, purple things marked on the posts of the trees. Then you see that yellow sign and it says what? No trespassing. Keep out. What might happen to you if you trespass? Well, who knows? You're kind of afraid to try it, Right? That's what this word means. You and I have crossed the line. We've crossed the boundaries of God's commands. This is done by doing something that He tells us not to do or not doing something that He tells us to do. It's a trespass of God's commands. Your sins are a trespass against God. And all of mankind has trespassed. All have broken God's laws, His commands. Here in verse 7 we see that there's the need of forgiveness. For that trespass. We need forgiveness more than anything else in the world. Some of us coming here today, we're wondering about our relationships. We're wondering about, you know, are my children ever going to behave and do what I tell them to do? Uh, Am I ever going to have a job where I, I, I make more money? Am I ever going to whatever? Those things are important. Those are things that we need to be thinking about. But the forgiveness of sin is the most important thing in the world. Because you have all those other things and you don't have Christ. They're worthless. Paul's reminding us of God's forgiving grace, the forgiveness of our sin. Even though we've broken God's law, even though we've trespassed, God in Jesus Christ forgives our sin when we repent of our trespass and we trust in the blood of Christ. If you're here today and you don't know the forgiveness of sin that's found in Jesus, let me say this to you. You don't need to leave here today before you do business with God. I'm not one of those kind who likes to scare people into salvation. I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, but I am responsible to tell you that you need Jesus. You shouldn't leave here today unless you do business with God. Life without that forgiveness here and hereafter brings the judgment and the condemnation of God. We need to make sure people understand that. You are under the judgment of a holy God. Verse 7. Redemption and forgiveness are according to the riches of His grace. Man, this, this is a powerful phrase here. According to the riches of His grace. Why would God do such an amazing thing when we've treated Him the way we have? Why would He do that? How many of you are likely to treat somebody well who treats you bad? Raise your hand, let me see. I didn't think so. That's not in our nature, right? But as Christians, we're to be forgiving, right? This is yes. Why would God do such an amazing thing when we've treated Him the way we have? It's certainly not because He looks at us and goes, well, hey, He's okay. It'd be good for me to take Him. Not so much this guy. It's not because of anything us. Instead, it's because of something in Him. It says it's according to the riches of His grace. This redemption, this forgiveness is according to the riches of God's grace. Notice this. Look at this. You know how I am about words. And I say this all the time. Words are important. Words in the Bible are very important. Notice it says, according to... Not out of. There's a big difference. you see that? It's according to. Not out of His riches. Let me illustrate that for you. Suppose you go to a multimillionaire this week and you say, you know, <clears throat> this Hurricane Matthew uh, caused a lot of flooding, a lot of damage, and people in North Carolina, are, they're out of their homes, and they've lost their possessions, and we're, we're just soliciting. We're, we're, we're asking for help. Uh, would, would you mind giving money to help with this relief? Multi-millionaire, right? He sits down writes you a check for $25 and hands that to you. What do you do? Go ahead. I know what you're thinking. $25, is it all you got? He would only be giving what? Out of his riches. Ordinary people can give... That kind of money, right? But what if that millionaire sat down and wrote you a check for $100,000? He'd be giving what? According to his riches and not out of them. That's what God did when He sent Jesus to die for you. He gave according to His riches. And we're going to see here in verse 8, if you'll look, which He what? Lavished on us. Lavish means to exceed. It means to be in abundance. It means that nothing remains. If someone lavishes something on you, they're giving you everything they've got. They're not withholding anything. Believer, sitting here today, born again Christian, you are the recipient of God's extravagant goodness and kindness. You ever think about that? God just didn't save you. He poured it out on you. He lavished upon you his grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin increasing, grace abounding more and more. You can't out sin the grace of God. You ever, you, ever, you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and them say, Well, I'm just too far gone for God to do anything with me? You ever had anybody tell you that? Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one, that person who may live in your community, you may work with, no one, regardless of where they're at, is beyond the reach of God. No one. You think of the worst person in your neighborhood or whoever you work with, and you've done this, right? Ain't no way God saved that guy or that gal. You've done that, right? I have. Nobody's beyond the reach of God. No, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. God also expresses His grace by giving us wisdom and insight. Or understanding in verse 8. God supplies lavish grace to redeem us. Lavish forgiveness of sin. But God also gives lavish wisdom to know how to live in light of that saving grace. What if God just saved you and said, Hey, you figure it out. You do the best you can. Most of us will make it how long? About five minutes, right? Without God's sustaining grace. He's given us wisdom and insight to how to live in light of this grace. God gives us wisdom to understand our redemption and to understand our forgiveness. And how does God do this? Through this. God gives us that wisdom and insight through His Word. He supplies us with all that's necessary to live out our salvation. And here I go again. You're going, another preacher telling me I need to read the Bible. I've heard that all my life. Well, how many of us do it? God's given us in His Word. He's lavished upon us wisdom and insight to understand this Gospel and know how to live it. Grace. Grace. God's grace. We sing this song, don't we? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is what? Greater than... That's biblical, right? That comes from Romans. Grace that is greater than what? Some of my sin? All my sin. Believer, do you ever stop and reflect on how great a sinner you are? Do you do that? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm worse. I'm worse than I appear to be. I do that quite often. Yeah, I know I'm your pastor. I'm worse than I ever thought myself to be. There's some. I'll be be quite honest. There's some days I go, "Why in the world would God ever say? Why does He even keep me saved the way I act, the way I think sometimes? Why does He do that?" But God's grace is greater. It's greater than all my sin. Today, believer, you need to pray, and you just need to adore God for His costly grace. For his forgiving grace, for his lavish, generous grace which he's given to you. It's a forgiveness that is far greater and more lavish than all your sin. Also, you must understand this, that God's lavish grace, listen, it reorients your life. When you realize that you've been redeemed, not because you deserved it, but because of God's free and lavish grace, You'll become a merciful, loving, forgiving person yourself. You'll forgive others. You're like, well, wait a minute. You don't know what people have done to me. I don't need to know. Think about what you've done to God. Does God look at us and go, well, not such a bad sinner. I'll take Him. Really bad sinner. No. But we do that with people, right? You'll forgive others. You won't hold grudges or be bitter toward another person, especially another Christian. Listen, we need to be careful as Christians. We cannot be bitter toward one another. We can't hold grudges. We need to get over ourselves because God has saved us. He has put marvelous, lavish grace on our lives and saved us. How can we not forgive others? How is that possible that we could have that mindset? Now my question for you is, do you believe this? In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Do you believe that? You say, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe this. But do you you experience it personally? And do you extend God's grace and forgiveness toward others? One night in a church service, God moved in the heart of a young woman, opened her blinded eyes, and He broke her hard heart, and she responded, and she believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. This particular young lady had a rough past. It involved alcohol and drugs and prostitution, but the change in her life was evident because she experienced the forgiveness of God. Over time, she became a faithful member of the church and she served, became a Sunday school teacher, taught children. It wasn't long until she caught the eye and the heart of the pastor's son. The relationship grew and they began to make wedding plans, but then problems started. Many in the church didn't think that a woman with a past such as hers would be a good fit for the pastor's son. And the church began to gossip and argue about this. And they even had a members meeting over the situation. As you can imagine, things got kind of heated, right? Tensions increased, and the meeting kind of got out of hand. And this young woman was sitting there, and she became very upset about all the things that were being brought up about her past. And she began to cry and weep. And the pastor's son stood up, and here's what he said, "My My fiancé... His past is not what is on trial here. Now listen. What you're questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So does it wash away sin or not? The whole church began to weep because they realized that they've been slandering the blood of Jesus who's greater than all our sin. My question for you is Do you slander the blood of Jesus because of your unwillingness to forgive other people? We sing this hymn sometimes too, right? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Either that's true or it's not. Right? It's not true for some people and not true for others. If the blood of Jesus does not wash away our sins completely, then we are all in a lot of trouble. Because we all have a lot of sins to deal with. Amen? If the blood of Jesus only atones for minor sins, what good is that? In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Thank God that's true today. Cling to that and live every day as a believer holding on to that. Verses 9 and 10. God's grace brings us revelation. Verse 9... Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Paul says that God has revealed His eternal plan to us. Making known to us what? The mystery of His will. God in His goodness, in His kindness, in His grace has revealed to us the saints, those who have received the Word of God through the preaching of the Gospel. God has made known the what? The mystery of His will. Listen to me carefully. We've all been guilty of this, right? I want to know the will of God. But what we're really saying is we want want to know the things that we don't know, right? We just need to do the things that we do and let God take care of the things that we don't know about, right? He says, Making known to us the mystery of His will. Mystery means to disclose what was previously a secret. The mystery of God's will is salvation through the cross salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the mystery that has been revealed, and He's made it known to us. If you go back and read the Old Testament, you will see through the Old Testament this promise of a Messiah. Someone's coming, right? But you never see the name of Jesus. But Jesus tells us, right? Everything you read there is pointing to who? It's pointing to me. The Old Testament says that a Messiah, a Savior is coming. But who this Messiah and Savior will be is not revealed until we get to what? The Gospel of Matthew. The mystery is what? Made known to us. You should never, ever take for granted knowing that truth. Because that truth is something which God has revealed. And the ability to understand that truth and to believe that truth is a gift of God's grace. You should never ever take for granted the truth that you've received in God's word and the gospel about the salvation that comes through Christ. God has revealed that to you. Verse 9, according to his purpose or his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. As God's choice of believers to be adopted as his sons and daughters, according to his purpose of his will, in verse 5, so too his making known the mystery of his salvation plan was completely in line with his sovereign. And eternal purposes, which he had determined before the foundation of the world. God's careful design strategy to make known the mystery has always focused on Jesus. And he has made that known to us. Verse 10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. History has a purpose, history is never meaningless. It's moving towards something, right? This world, history is moving towards something. God has had a plan for the fullness of time. God has had a plan before the foundation of the world. He's had a plan for all of history. What is God's plan here for all of history? Notice what it says. It is to unite or gather together. Some translations say sum up. All things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. That word unite is very important there. It implies that things before... Here's what what that word means. Before Jesus, things were in a mess because of Adam and Eve and their disobedience to God. Everything was a mess before that. Paradise was lost when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But God has revealed to us, Paul says, that all things, things in heaven and things on earth, will be what? Not a mess. One day, they'll be brought together. All things is a figure of speech. All things as a figure speaks. It means comprehensionness. How many of you ever took a comp exam in school? Whew, boy. Yeah, nobody ever took a comp exam in school? You college kids, you ever took a comp exam? What does comp mean? They throw everything out there, right? I had a professor one time, I went to him and I asked him, I said, could you kind of give me an idea of what's on the exam? He said, yeah, everything. Everything. It includes the restoration of this fallen creation. The salvation and perfect sanctification of all God's people. Did you hear what I said? The perfect sanctification of your spouse, of your children, if they know Jesus. The perfect sanctification, the perfect restoration of all the creation. Everything in Jesus. 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 1, verse 20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in who? Jesus. Jesus. Revelations 21 verse 5 says that God is making all things new. And He's doing that through Jesus. God has revealed to us His plan. That He is going to bring everything together in perfect harmony one day. And it's because of Jesus that that will happen. Here's the application of that. If all things will be subject one day to Jesus Christ as Lord. And if all His people will dwell together in unhindered harmony in heaven, then it follows that we should bring every area of our lives and every relationship now under His Lordship. If it's going to happen then, why don't we do it now as His people? Let me tell you how to do that. Number one, To submit to Jesus as Lord begins with your thought life. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how does that happen? The Word of God. When simple thoughts pop in your mind, you must turn from them and put Jesus on the throne of your mind. Submit your thoughts to Jesus as Lord. Second... Submitting to Jesus as Lord also requires that you bring your priorities and values in line with His Word. Do you hear what I'm saying? Your values and your priorities in line with His Word. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are we supposed to seek first, Christian? What are we supposed to seek first, church? The what? Is there... Are y'all out there? The kingdom of God. That's what we're to seek first. Question. What do we seek first? The kingdom of God. What do we seek first? I don't know about you, but that's pretty clear. What's God's will for my life? Seek first the kingdom of God. You don't need to worry about anything else. If you do that, everything else... Jesus said everything else will be taken care of, right? Now you may not wake up tomorrow and go, well, I know who I'm going to marry. That's not what I'm talking about. Seek first the kingdom of God, and God will take care of everything else. Thirdly, Jesus' says, Lord also means that we bring our schedules under the Lordship of Jesus. Whoa. We're all given a certain amount of time here, Right? A lot of hours each day are taken up with things that are necessary. Sleeping, eating, and work. But how do we spend those other hours? Do we make spending time alone with God a priority? Do we hunger and thirst to know Him? Can I tell you as your pastor, I've had to repent this week. Because I have found myself not loving and not having a passion for the Word of God like I should. You're going, well, you you study to teach and preach every week? Yeah. But I honestly believe I ought to be doing more of that outside of my time of coming or preparing to teach you. I think there will be more time where I'm just alone with God, loving Him through His Word. Do we hunger and thirst to know Him? Fourthly, living under Christ's lordship also means that we order our relationships according to His Word. Do you hear what I said? Our relationships according to His Word. We must learn to truly love others the way He's loved us. Speaking kindly to one another. We must put away selfishness and strife. In Shakespeare's play, and I'm by no means a... Expert on Shakespeare. To be quite honest with you, I don't lame like reading it because I can't understand half of it. I hear some people laughing over here. Y'all read it too, right? In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, Macbeth has this pessimistic outlook on the world. Here's what he says about history. History is a tale. Told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Some of you are quoting there. Y'all, read, y'all remembered it, right? Good Lord. History is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Apart from God's grace to give us wisdom and insight, Macbeth might be right. The outcome of history is certain and God has revealed it to us in advance. Don't go too far with this, but every one of us sitting in here who know Jesus are fortune tellers. And you don't even need a crystal ball to do it. The outcome of history is certain and God has revealed it to us. He's going to sum up all things under the Lordship of Jesus. Now here's what I want to tell you this and we're going to finish. Knowing that outcome, you'd be a fool to bet your life on anything else. You'd be an absolute fool to put your life on anything else. God wants each of us to submit now to Jesus as Lord and to spend our lives advancing the mission of God. That's what God wants us to give our lives to, right? Seek you first what? In light of God's sovereign revealed purposes. That's the only wise way to invest your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reminder of Your Word today.